fellow disruptors, how are you doing today? Want to welcome you back to another episode of Habitually Disruptive. I am Gerardo Adriano Munoz, Master of Arts in Education, doctoral candidate, poet, madman, philosopher, and your 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year. Uh, this is a podcast about disruption. This is a podcast about questioning the status quo and wondering if there's another way. And more than anything else, this is a podcast about stepping outside of the box and seeing what else is out there. So uh, every week or whenever my doctoral program is not trying to kill me, we uh, come to you, uh, we meaning me, with usually with a guest who is disrupting um, some notion of the work that they are doing. And uh, man, it's springtime, it's uh, March, it's hiring season, a lot of things in transition. So I think this is a really great time to start thinking about what can be disrupted in you. Um, If you wanna follow what we're doing, you can follow us on the main social media outlets at Two Dope Teachers, where you can find not only Habitually Disruptive, but the flagship podcast, Two Dope Teachers and a Mic, as well as the hit series, The Exit Interview, hosted by Asia Lyons and Kevin Adams. So you can follow us at Two Dope Teachers on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. We never post there. We're not sure what TikTok is for, but it's there. So no one else to take it. And uh, and we're out here. Um, so uh, shout out if you haven't had a chance to listen to the last two dope teachers in a mic podcast. We actually had Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona, Doctor Miguel Cardona. We had a great conversation, and uh, what I hope to be um, the first of many more. So. So I'm going to talk about my vibe, and then I'm going to introduce my guest that uh, we talked for a while. We've known each other on social media for a while. This is a really amazing individual that I think you're really going to enjoy learning from. Um, So appropriate to this podcast interview that we'll be doing, I've been sitting with a lot of restlessness and uncertainty. Um, I don't think it's a secret that I have not felt super comfortable in, um, in my work situation lately. It's nothing that anybody is doing. It's just that I've been 23 years in this game. And the last year as Colorado Teacher of the Year showed me that perhaps there's a world elsewhere. Um, Perhaps there's a way to impact education in a different way, in a larger way. Um, And maybe I'm starting to see some opportunities there. Um, it's, It's tough because I get asked a lot, well, what needs to be different? What needs to be different for you to remain in the classroom? And honestly, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just feeling restless and uncertain. Um... So that's something I'm sitting with, and I really think that this uh, interview that you're about to hear is really going to touch on that. You know, I, I think that on the one hand, I I want to tell people n- don't necessarily give up because it's hard. Um, sometimes, sometimes when it's hard, it makes it worth it on the other side. And we're going to come out of this. We will. Whatever the new normal is, I believe in the teachers around me to survive that. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about the lack of support that Colorado teachers get um, from legislators, from um, elected officials, from bureaucrats and civil servants. Um, and 
talking with Secretary Cardona really, really um, caused me to see things a little bit differently. Um, I'm going to abandon the deficit mindset for a minute, um, but I just want to say this. The class of 2022, my seniors, will graduate in about two months without ever having experienced a single day of fully funded education. After the housing crisis hit Colorado, um, our lawmakers made the choice to borrow from our kids. They called it the Budget Stabilization Factor. Um, Yes, the acronym is BS Factor because it was BS. In 2009, our kids have never been paid back. And now, according to the Biden administration, there's more money in education than there's ever been before. I think the number was $130 billion. So one has to ask really important questions of the people who are allocating budgets in the state of Colorado. I don't know where the buck needs to stop, but it does because there's a whole lot of finger pointing. It's like like everyone is in that Spider-Man meme that it's somebody else's fault, somebody else needed to do something different, and that's why we have run-down schools that don't have the basic necessities to protect kids during a pandemic. I don't know. But what I do know is that we owe our kids a hundred... We Sorry, that's the wrong number. We owe our kids a whole lot of money. And here's the thing. We're not going to be able to pay them back. The only thing we can do is pay it forward. And I don't have any belief after having sat in some spaces with Colorado legislators. I just don't have any belief that we're ever going to even pay it forward. There's no investment in education in Colorado. I don't have to tell you where we rank. It's become a joke. It's become a meme. So I'm going to flip that to a positive I'm going to talk to my Colorado teachers. Some of y'all I see every day in the building where I work. Others of you I talk with whenever our paths cross. Others of you I see posting on social media, sharing what you're going through, doing interviews, and just kind of being there to sort of tell a story. And y'all are freaking amazing. The fact that you show up with joy and love and commitment despite the fact that your classrooms are underfunded, despite the fact that our legislators and the people who allocate funds to education and to schools are just asking you to do it with one hand tied behind your back, you're incredible. And I'm not going to go into some toxic positivity rant about how you're heroes. You're human. You are humans who are doing this every single day. With what you have been given, your effort has been breathtaking. Colorado education may be underfunded, 
But don't get it twisted. Colorado students are not undertaught. Imagine what happens when we fully fund our kids. Imagine what happens when we cut the BS and give the money back to the children in the classroom. Imagine what happens. And, uh, you know, it's not a given that schools need to be underfunded. Maybe it's time for wider action. Maybe it's time for a general strike. Maybe it's time for something more profound than just sending letters and just showing up for photo ops with our lawmakers. Maybe maybe it's just going to take more than that. So those of you who are remaining in teaching, I salute you. I don't know if I'm going to be one of them, but you know I'm always going to be a classroom teacher in my heart and soul. That's always going to be how I show up. So, so here's my, my guest this week is Nora Rahimian, uh, the founder of Culture Fix. Nora's a dope human. If you don't follow Nora, you have to follow Nora on Twitter. Um, you also have to follow the hashtag culture fix because Nora is always looking for ways for us to get free. And, uh, you know, I'm going to let Nora speak for herself, but let me just tell you my, my three main takeaways and uh, hopefully you can you have your own takeaways, but I just want to share with you what I got out of this conversation. So number one, you got to lean into what you were born for. Nora was born in chaos. She was born in upheaval. Just like so many of us who listen to this podcast, so many educators of color, so many educators from marginalized communities, she was born in chaos. And she's really committed to living out that chaos, like to living out with the energy that she was born into. Number two, identify what you control and what others control. Um, Nora's a person that believes that we all can be individually liberated, but that it's limited unless we strive for collective liberation. And it's a powerful thing. Um, she's put me in this space where I've been thinking a lot about these things. What are the things that I do control over my desire to be free? What are the things that I do not control? And the last and most important piece of this interview, in my view, is always create. Always create. Whatever that means for you. Always create. For me, it's writing and podcasting. Um, this is super fun. I really enjoy coming at you. Um, whenever I get a chance, and I'm hoping I can be more consistent for you going forward. Um, I want to thank everyone who's support, supported us financially through the Patreon. Uh, without y'all, this just isn't possible. So without any further ado, uh, I'm going to conclude my comments. I'm going to um, pass you on to living, living into what you were born for with Nora Rahimian. Hey yo, what's up, my disruptors? We are we are getting into 2022. 2022 is basically over. Like we made it the first few days, and I think things are okay. Um, we are here. I am here. You're not here. You're here, but not really. But I'm actually here uh, with a. I guess could I call us friends? Are we friends? Oh, we're absolutely friends. This is great. I don't ever want to be. Um, I don't ever want to be presumptuous about that. With my friend. 
Nora Rahimian, Rahimian yeah. also <laughs> in the in the Persian sort of um, the founder of this dope dope idea called Culture Fix. Nora, welcome to Hi. the Virtually Disruptive. Hi. It's so good to have you here. I'm We've so been trying good. to do this for a while. Um, and life happens and things come up and and you're you've got I feel like you have a hand in so many different projects and so many things that you're doing. Um, so I just really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Um, I want to first of all, gosh, I don't even know where to start. You're like such an interesting person with such a great story. Um, so we're going to get to Culture Fix um, in a little bit. But I think um, the first thing I'd like you to do is just sort of talk about what it is that you do. And once you do that, I feel like people will appreciate your background and kind of where you come from, what your path has been. Sure, yeah, okay, what do I, this is always such a complicated question. I know, that's why I asked it first because people need to hear it. <laughs> I think at the core of everything I do is I help, how do I say this? My goal in life, is to overthrow white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism, and to have us rethink and really decolonize the ways that we deal with each other, that we build relationships, build our relationship with ourselves, and think about our role and placement in this world, in this time and place. Yeah. How I do that, I think, yeah. is part of what like changes over time. Um, but the thing I keep coming back to is the way art and culture can help us do those things. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's what I do. I help artists think about how they can navigate in the, in the world that we live in with all this yeah. like pain and suffering and harm um, and how they can use their tools and their resources to help us achieve all those things that I just said. And then there's like, you know, nitty gritty, you know, I coach, I consult, I teach workshops, I produce a hip hop festival, I have a YouTube series, I run culture fix, like whatever. Those are yeah. like, titles right but I think what I do is I connect people I I help people think differently I make maybe what seems impossible a little more practical under this world that we live in um, yeah. yeah I think that's so I think that's so deep so like one thing I thought about when when you talked about kind of the the work you do on kind of the philosophical spiritual level um humanistic level versus the jobs that you will take from time to time to, to engage in that work. It makes me think of the last time I visited Mexico. I remember I had family members um, ask me a question, but, but it's not like in the U.S. We're like, well, what do you do? What's your job? Like that kind of thing. Uh, I remember being asked, uh, de que dedicas? which is like, what are you dedicated mm -hmm. to? And I just really love that because I feel like that's what you just gave us. You just gave us these ideas that you're dedicated to and the work that you do is aligned to those ideas. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. Um, tell us a little bit about Culture Fix and um, because that's how I came across you. And it's interesting because one thing I'll say is that um, what drew me to your work on social media is that um, you talk about these, these things, the, the hurt that exists in the world, the trauma that we're experiencing, um, all of these oppressive conditions brought about by white supremacy and capitalism and settler colonialism and all of these, um, these processes that have happened over centuries. Um, 
but I always feel so motivated by what you share and by what you post. And so I think you do also embody that radical joy that is like, yeah, man, revolutions are, but it's fun. And, you know, engaging in this stuff is important and it, and it gives us joy. So, so culture fix is how I sort of started learning about you. Um, What is the idea behind culture fix? What do you do there? Yeah. Well, and and can I just say, I think part of it, like, I think that's part of what makes art and culture and relationships so important in this kind of like revolutionary work is, okay, it's easy to talk about what we don't want, but then what's, what are we imagining? Like, what are we creating that alternative? Not just like, what does it look like, but what does it feel like? And then we can create like whatever we want. Um, And, and joy and happiness and love, like, you know, thinking about like love is like a radical pedagogy and love is like a radical practice. That's where all the right. things come in, um, yeah. which is so counter to how we've been told to think about all of these things. Yeah, so, culture absolutely. Fix, so culture fix is a global network of artists, activists, entrepreneurs, creatives, like however people define themselves who share these values and who use their platforms for social change. And our, our ideas are based on the fact that our struggles are all interconnected. So whatever is happening here in the US is not separate from what's happening in Palestine, is not separate from what's happening in Brazil, is not separate right. from what's happening anywhere else. Um, and that we have everything we need to succeed and thrive and overthrow these systems within our own network. So rather than relying or waiting for systems of power to give us our freedom or give us the resources or whatever, right. Like we, we can do that amongst and for one another. And so it really is grounded in this, um, in this mentality of like sharing and abundance and collaboration and compassion. Um, and so we, we connect people and we do creative projects and actually culture fix started on Twitter. Um, wow. Because- yeah. Cause it's got the hashtag. I was like, is this where it? <laughs> yeah, and so we, this was maybe like, I'm terrible with timelines. Like eight years ago, I was on a Twitter chat And this woman was in there talking about like global hip hop and activism. And I was like, what? Me too. And so literally it was like, we sent four tweets back and forth. I slid in her DMs. Natalie and I got on a phone call and realized that we both knew people all over the world who were doing this kind of amazing work, um, but they didn't know each other. And so that was like the real birth of Culture Fix was let's create a space where we can connect people. Yeah. People. And so, yeah we had started culture fix before we ever like ever even saw each other's faces. Wow. wow. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that, I mean, that how, how Twitter is that, right? Like I, f- I feel like it is some of the most influential people that I've connected with over the last few years are people that I've never met in person that I've exchanged messages with, talked with, um, even debated at points, you know, on Twitter and it, and it's a beautiful thing. So culture fix is a collective. Um, it sounds like, and it sounds like it's kind of, it's powered by its members, by its kind of network and that kind of thing, or how, how would you describe the Yeah, function? I love, you, you called it an idea, and I love that. I've always described <laughs> We're just kind of like this amoebas, like if you want to claim it, it's yours. Like, yeah. I don't, so Natalie Crew and I co-founded it, I'm actively like running it, but like, <laughs> it's decentralized in the sense of like, if, if this aligns for you, cool, take it and do what you need to do with it. Because wow. how do I, like, how can I lay claim to an idea that doesn't belong to me? Like I can right. hold space, but if mm-hmm. I'm talking all this talk about wanting to challenge systems and like redistribute power, 
And how can I then come in and be like, no, 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 but this is mine and y'all can't use it, right? And I think yeah. that's one of the things that if we think about kind of what activism or like these things look like in today's world, people talk the talk, but we still hoard power and we yeah. still hoard resources and we still hoard relationships. And so yeah. even though we're, we're understanding the ideology, we're getting like the theory of it, in practice, I think we still hang on to like old emotional patterns. Yeah. So we're like, well, why hasn't anything changed? Because like we haven't done the inside work. And I think this is also where like art starts to come in is art is where we start to feel things differently so that yeah. we can then behave differently so that we start to step out of our comfort zone or, or whatever. And so I, my hope is that's what Culture Fix does. It gives people an access point or an entry point to know that these ideas that they have, that they're not like radical, that they're not the only right. one, right? Like right. they're not like, oh, it, you're too ideological. You'll right. grow it, you know? Um, and so they can, that culture fixes a community where people can find people like them yeah. uh, and then do dope shit together. Yeah, no, I, 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 love, I love how you explain it because it, it sounds like it, it's also kind of, the process that you're embracing is a decolonial process, right? It's a decolonizing process where, you know, it's about removing some of these vestiges of capitalism that if I, if, if you gain, then I lose and all of these different sort of scarcity mindsets that I think um, I've heard a lot more folks talking about, uh, particularly in, in these circles. And, and I don't want to understate the, the role of creativity. You said, you said something about how, you know, it changes the way you feel. And that, that, could you say that one more time? That was just such a brilliant, like, like thing yeah, I want on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like it's right. We can argue and we see this all the time. We argue facts. We argue data. We argue, like we see that the globe is round and people are like, no, it's flat because I've decided that it's flat. Right. Yeah. But you can't really argue emotion. You can't, argue like our responses to things and so art storytelling like songs music all these things it changes the way we feel and then when yeah. we change the way we feel we start to change the way we think which then changes the way we act yeah. and so if our ultimate goal is behavior change around social justice issues or all these things it has to start with that that emotional piece so that we create um sustainable internalized change right like otherwise we're just going through the motions yeah and that you, doesn't help anyone you you sent a tweet a while ago um that i that i'm kind of connecting what you're saying back to um i think you were i think you were referring more to um this debate about whether schools should remain open to in-person learning and that kind of thing and you kind of stepped away and say who's like who's actually benefiting from whatever side they're kind of arguing and particularly about this insistence that schools be open. I, I think that's also, you can take what you just said about creativity, feel, think, act, like these three really important, um, you know, processes you go through in the creative process. And it's kind of no wonder that so many schools, um, you know, will cut the arts before they cut anything else. They will relegate the arts to kind of back of the bus importance in terms of the school curriculum. And again, like you have to think about what it is. Like, I'm not necessarily saying that there's a grand conspiracy in all cases, but I will say that I think that 
when you when you underestimate the power the transformative power of creativity um then and and you relegate it as such then you're you're going to see kind of what we're seeing in schools which is um a lot of technical training a lot of reification a lot of alienation from you know your soul and kind of my my kid and I are just having this conversation she attends an art school here in Denver and um and we were talking about how you know having an arts centered educational experience isn't just about becoming a professional muralist like that's not the only thing to think about it's it's thinking about the things that can change in you when you engage in a creative process and for me it was high school theater like i did high school theater for 4 years and I, I can tell you that it was, it's probably remains today the most important educational process I experienced in terms of preparing me for the world, you know, being able to show up, being able to demonstrate the things that I'm feeling and he listen for stories and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I just really appreciate you saying that. I want to, I want to do a quick pivot. Um, so we had a chance to talk a while back and get to know each other a little bit your background your path your upbringing is just so interesting to me and so powerful and so eclectic i, I feel like there's there are parts of your path from you know from from the day you were born <laughs> right <laughs> to um to kind of coming into your own in this work that you're doing that i think are really fascinating so um, I, I want to know about, I want, I, want I, I already know about this spoiler. Um, I want the audience to hear a little bit about kind of where you came from, where you grew up, how you as, um, as a person from another region of the world kind of made sense of the community you grew up in and how you connected there. And just, I, I, I want folks to hear this because I think it, I think it gives a lot of background on, on the work that you do and the, in the philosophy and, and spirit you bring into your work. Yeah. Yeah. This is why I am. <laughs> why <I'm here. laughs> yes. Um, so I, I was, I was born in Iran during the U S instigated Iran Iraq war. Um, and the night I was born, uh, Saddam Hussein was dropping bombs that the United States had given him, um, over, over Tehran. And so like my, so in the midst of like, like my family was in the basement trying not to get, you know, hoping that their homes wouldn't get destroyed. And yeah. here I am like, like chaos, cool, like I'm ready, um, which is basically like me in a nutshell. Um, and we, you know, my family's uh, Jewish. And so we, I was born in a war, we left as religious refugees, um, lived on three continents before I was three and ended up in the, eventually ended up on uh, Chumash and Tonga land and what is now uh, occupied Los Angeles. Um, but when people ask like, why do you do the things you do? Like my whole life has been shaped by geopolitical factors outside of my control yeah. to be here. If I had stayed in Iran, I would have been a completely different person. Like my trauma yeah. would have been different. My, what that did to, you know, to my family dynamics and any of us who are in diaspora, I think can relate to what that does across generations yeah. and all. So um, I ended up in a neighborhood where I was the only Persian kid I knew. Um, I learned Spanish because yeah. that's what I was growing up with. Um, and in the neighborhood, a lot of my friends were gang affiliated, gang associated. Um, and so for me, what became, but I was like the smart one. And so right. 
the idea that like, and I also had a sense of like needing to escape, needing to leave. So I always kind of knew that school was going to be my way out. Yeah. Uh, now understanding like what it meant to escape and why I thought out was the way to go rather than stay sure. in the community, but that's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. Um, so as soon as I could, I turned 18. I was like, cool, I'm out of here, going as far away as I can get to go to college. Um, but really felt the privilege I had of being able to leave when my right. friends couldn't. And yeah. so I, um, I started doing gang intervention, violence prevention, prison outreach, abolition work. And that was like, that was my trajectory. I was doing like super grassroots community work. I thought I was gonna move to El Salvador and bring peace to La Mara Salvatrucha. Like yeah. I was on this like wave and what, what ended up happening and and you know what it taught me was a lot of the basic tenements of community organizing and connecting and the value of community against like so-called expertise yeah. um, and then what happened was nobody wanted to fund our work because they thought that we were gangbangers and one of yeah. the major foundations was like no you're going to go start a cartel so we can't give money for this program like, wow. and I mean, this was, yeah. Oh, yeah. those were not my yeah. words, those were their yeah. words. Um, and so long story short, I ended up getting a master's degree. And I, again, I realized like the privilege in the ways that education sure. has allowed me to do those things, but yeah. that's because my social location is different from other people's, right? So yeah. Yeah. long story short, then I end up in Liberia. I met a rapper. I get peer pressured into managing this rapper. I become the first music manager. And <laughs> this like, is like my favorite part. <laughs> and I, I was like, I don't know. I'm trying to overthrow capitalism. Like, I don't know how to manage you, but I got, I get peer pressured. And yeah. it was my kind of community organizing background right. that made me a good manager. But the over, um, what I saw in Liberia, and I think what's helped me pivot to this point in my work is how ineffective all the nonprofits, the NGOs, the big governmental organizations like are sitting there, all these expats eating all this like international aid money. Like if you ever think that resources are, the resources are not the problem, right? It's the distribution because- Yeah, yeah, say that, say that. And, and like, and I would see them, they would have all this like programming budget for, the car and their that's right that's right their program assistant whatever when we got to pay salaries to people so they can really dedicate all their time to this yeah like but then art was like oh we don't have a budget for the artists and so even recognizing like as you built like how do we integrate art and culture and emotion like really this is a question of like how do we integrate emotion into the things that we value, value from the ground up rather than yeah. as amplified. Um, so I saw very clearly these NGOs were like getting all this money, but not really doing anything effective. And meanwhile, here's this rapper who is like Tupac as far as Liberians are concerned. And uh, he can say sit and everybody will sit. And he can say, hey, the new thing is to wear red t-shirts and tomorrow everybody will red wear will wear red t-shirts. And so what I saw yeah. was if they trust him in this way, they will trust him with other things. And so wow. that's where we started to build out um, an entertainment education type model. And yeah. well, then, I want to know a little bit about how you got peer pressured into managing him. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> <it's>, 
because I, I love this idea. It's like, hey, you should manage this rapper. You're like, I don't manage musicians. So like, so how did that happen? So we were there on a graduate school field study with a okay. professor who had been back and forth to Liberia many years, but had never used Liberian money, never used local transportation. Like the man was very scared of Liberia. And mm-hmm. all my peers, I think there was like nine of us had these like fancy NGO jobs and they had like a car, pick them up to take them to their air right. conditioned office. And, and I was working for a super local organization, like, community-based, Liberian-run, Liberian-owned organization. Um, and I had a friend who was also in our cohort who was a DJ who was okay. there like to scope out music. Yeah. So my friend and I in Liberia, my internship supervisor, everyone else has rules and curfews. My first night in Liberia, my internship supervisor comes and he's like, yo, we're going to the club. <laughs> yes. Cool. <laughs> He picked me up and we went to um, like not an expat club. We went to a Liberian club and I heard the music and the, my DJ friend was with me. And so we just started to build this relationship and my supervisor was friends with the rapper. And so he's now trying to be like, okay, like you're a DJ, like we should all. And so how it started was we were going to have the rapper do like a street jam for us where I was interning. And so yeah. that's how he and I met. And so the rapper and my DJ friend, they start working together. The full story y'all is the rapper and I, we hit it off. And so there's a little vibe happening. Yeah. So my, so my DJ friend, shout out to Chief Boima, who's editor of Africa as a country. If y'all haven't checked that out, you should definitely check out their work. Um, yeah. So Chief Boima is like, all right, He's like peeping what's happening. And it's like, well, Nora, you should help him. Like he listens to you. And so that's kind of where the idea came in. That's so dope. And then my internship supervisor, he's loving this because he's now like, oh, you don't even like, he's like, this rapper is your internship now. Go put Liberian music on the map, like go help him. Like, he's like, you don't even need to come to the office anymore. Like, and so- they, my internship supervisor and my DJ friend and this rapper like basically start colluding to, to like get me involved and I like I said I was like I don't know you know we were talking earlier about like imposter syndrome and how often we say no to things yeah and I was like well I don't I don't know what I don't know but what I do know is I'm good at bringing people together. I'm good at thinking strategically. Like, let's try. Like, let's try. Yeah. It. And when 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 was this? Because because I because I'm a yeah. When when was this that this this all started to play out for you in Liberia? I'm terrible. I'm so terrible with time. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, let me go back to my journals. Um, time is a construct. Time, time is a construct. Really is a construct. <laughs> um, I don't know, like eight or 10 years ago, maybe 10 okay. years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But so that's how I got into, I got into music and he was already politically aligned. And so that's where the, that's where I really started to understand kind of some of the things we've been talking about, where yeah. when there is a pre-existing relationship, when there is trust, when there is accessibility, yeah. Yeah. then people will relate and respond and allow emotions and allow vulnerability 
and then they will take in the message versus like yeah. you're some motivational speaker i don't know you from anywhere and you're gonna tell yeah. me to drugs drugs are bad and i'm or like oh. you can do this yeah right, right. Wow. especially and especially when you don't understand the nuances of the like we can't all do the same thing because we have different levels of privilege and different levels of access and different levels right. of, of um, you know, like what's actually, uh, what's the word, like accessible to us. Yeah. And so um, it, to see the difference so clearly between like the NGO world that yeah. I had in and then this like creative, and also it's the rate of change is so much faster with a song, yeah, artist, yeah. Like, right? We change trend, like you see how quickly trends change. And so if yeah. we can treat social justice as a trend, right? Like not to minimize it in any way. Yeah, no, not, not in the performative, like superficial shallow way, but it, as something that is agile and right. that is, that, that has its finger on the pulse of the people and really understands what the people need right. is, is that kind of what you're getting at once we like yeah. if we can if we can build on the psychology of it then we can change things so much more quickly so much more effectively um where people aren't just going through the motions but now yeah. they've like they've swallowed it right and start to learn yeah. it I'm, I'm gonna tell you what's really striking about what you're saying because and maybe folks in the audience will be able to relate to this. Um, so two thoughts. I had a lot of the same thoughts about opportunities that came my way, um, pr probably around the same time, you know, uh, and I was keenly aware of what I didn't know. But what I'm realizing is that you and I went radically different directions with what we didn't know. And I think that kind of speaks to a little bit, uh, it, it probably it has a lot to do with both of our upbringings. Like I think that for you to be born in chaos, as you say, and, and like makes me think of that also Motley um, song or the album uh, embrace the chaos, where mm -hmm. it's kind of like there's in chaos, there's opportunity and there's an energy. And I think that, I think that that is very much a part of what drove you in the direction that you went into. For me, it manifested as being so insecure about things that, I wasn't knowledgeable about and just passing things up because like, I don't know anything about that. And I think maybe that's a function of capitalism as well. And that's something that you also tweet about a lot is like that when we see manifestations of the system, we need to be able to connect those back to the system. And so the system will tell us that if you don't have technical skill or the right degrees or the right resume for certain things that you're into, you just don't have any business doing those things. And that you should leave it up to, you know, the pros when it comes to things like producing a musician and that kind of thing. Um, and so I think that your idea, and this is probably the most disruptive thing that I think people need to hear from you, is that if you don't know what you don't know, what is stopping you, right? So find ways to learn and grow into the process. And, and I think it's also not lost on me as an immigrant woman. I feel like that's an even bigger obstacle because you all are trained to believe that you're not enough men we're just kind of like yo we could get in this and yeah i'll apply for that job and research shows that when it comes to these positions women will remove themselves from the pool because they don't feel like they have the qualifications where men are kind of like oh i could probably do that <laughs> you know and so i think that that sort of disruptive mindset is really powerful um 
and important to hear. And I wish I'd heard it earlier. It's literally only been since I turned 45 or so that I've started to kind of realize that, you know, maybe I can do some of the things I've always wanted to. It's interesting because I think for me, what allowed me to like take that risk was not that I was doing it for myself, is that I was doing it for Oh, I love this. I love this. Is my conditioning as, and I'm like the oldest child of immigrants. Yeah. My conditioning to put other people first and uplift other people. And so I didn't think twice about jumping it. And I like moved to Liberia, like, yeah. Like, to go all in on behalf of like uplifting someone else. Oh man, but I love that so like, Was much. I gonna put myself out there? Right. No, no yeah. and that's part. And I think what's important is how much we think about and talk about imposter syndrome as yeah. if it's something inherently wrong with us. Like we call it a syndrome as if we're sick, but under yeah, yeah, and under like white yeah, I tested positive for imposter syndrome <laughs> hopefully like, you know there's no vaccine so I'm just hoping to be able to manage it for the rest of my life <laughs> like, like we get into like well why am I not good enough what's wrong with me why versus without looking at well imposter syndrome comes out of a context that's right that self-sick and right. as, as women of color as queer folks as immigrants as like all of these other systemically oppressed groups imposter syndrome has been cultivated in us yeah. so that we don't speak up so that That's we right. don't take the risk so that yeah. someone like me doesn't apply for the job so they put another basic ass white guy That's in right. that position and so like yep. imposter syndrome is not a failure on our on, on us as individuals imposter syndrome is a systemic illness it's like a symptom of a sick system yeah. Um, and so I think for me, part of, and then, so let's add to that, right? We have the pressure of like, we aren't good enough. We're not perfect. So we work harder to overcome right. yep. and then we don't take the risks. So that's also like capitalism exa- extracting as much as possible from us. And then there's this other level of things are only valuable if they produce. That's right. If they're, if they're consumable. And, so and then, frankly, if they if they make money, right? right? If they make money, that's that's what values what puts value on them. Yeah, I used to I used to do these radical self care circles. Um, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> this is this is the most important like therapy I've received in 2022. This is incredible. <laughs> it's it's, and I there's a Palestinian woman, a, a doctor who talks about this that like our mental health stuff is not because of us. These are normal responses to a system that's- Wow, really, wow. Like the micro, like, and we're so, we've normalized it, right? The colonial yep. mentality has just like, oh yeah, no, we deal with it. Ha, ha, and we, we make all these jokes, right? No, we like, do, absolutely, yep. Ha, the world's not gonna be here in 25 years because uh, climate change, oh well. so like, who cares, whatever. Yeah, ha. that's right, that's right. Because- we we're so we feel so powerless because no matter how much I sleep, no matter how much I rest, no matter how much I drink water, no matter how much I do yoga and go to therapy. That's right. Like that is not going to heal the fact that colonialism is painful and white supremacy is killing us and capitalism like and so we've been told something is the solution for something that is not. And I think if 
like the most baseline disruptive thing that folks can start to do is to yeah. start to ask why like yeah. is this really is this really true or has this been taught to me under this system who yeah. really benefits from us thinking this way and that's i right. think we start to find that so many of the things that we accept as well that's just the way it is or yeah. this is are actually um like hegemony and status quo being right left down our throat that's yeah and that that's um it makes me think of uh frary's uh, pedagogy of the oppressed when he talks about um magical consciousness that oh it's just the way it is nobody can do anything about it it's this this magical thing that comes from some other realm that we don't have any control of we can just try to just deal with it and move on and that kind of thing and and that's literally what he says um is it, it, that it that there is a system within which this stuff is happening i interrupted you that was really rude i'm sorry no no, no. <laughs> no but it's but it's, it's that and that is also a function of cap like i think about how often in my life I've been told, oh, you'll change your mind when you get older. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah, absolutely. You'll, you'll outgrow, you'll outgrow these beliefs. That's so, right. Rather than like engaging, and this is from everything. This is everything from me, like not wanting to get married or have children to like how I think capitalism is ruining the world. Like you're right. <laughs> to all right. And so off bat, right? It's the dismissiveness of you don't really know what you want or what you yeah. want. Right, which is itself so part of how we start being culturally gaslit in the sense of this overriding value system is going to override what you inherently know about yourself. Yeah. It's such a crazy message that we receive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so yeah, that's deep. there's there's all this language and stuff out there that says if you don't measure up to these things that we've decided are like success or well-being or whatever, you're not doing it right. Oh, this is what right. I was saying. Speaking of well-being, right? I was teaching this like radical self-care. We were holding right. and this woman was struggling with the idea that taking care of herself was not a good use of time. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Like, so the fact that we don't, right, we've been taught that producing for other people, making some millionaire more money, taking care, like all of these things are good use of time. But you taking time to do whatever rest looks like for you is not a good use of time is my like, is mind blowing. But yeah. we've, we've normalized it and we've normalized. And I think the other part where it gets tricky and if I'm getting off topic, bring me back, but I get so excited about these. You, you, you are the topic. No, this is good. <laughs> I think the other place where it gets tricky is because we're intersectional complex beings, right? Yeah. Sometimes we take the language of, like I think about, there's a lot of capitalism that is now masquerading as feminism. Things like boss babe, mm, yeah, like, you know, like yeah. girl, girl. The, the, what, what's the uh, the work of uh, Brene Brown, which talks about being brave and all these other kinds of things, um, which is doing a lot of harm to Black and Brown women in the same 
like areas of work who, yes. you know, for whom being brave is risky and dangerous because there are simply bigger things to brave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Talk about that. Talk about yeah. that. I love it. Yeah. So like here we <clears throat> think, and there's like a whole economy around it. There's people yeah. who are teaching like conferences and stuff, but like, so maybe it's uplifting from like a gender perspective, may, sure. maybe, arguably, maybe. right? Like, and in some sense, for, for some folks, yeah, right. And in some senses, we can even argue that that's patriarchy because we're not thinking about what does success look like for us as individuals. We're saying yeah. women need to be like men, which that's is right. still reinforcing the like dichotomy of patriarchy and like that hierarchy and stuff. So, yeah. but so by, but we're still upholding capitalistic values. Yeah right? Work harder, grind. How many more, like I'm part of this, the speaker group of, of women of color. And the number of times people are like, oh, I'm charging more money. I'm doing more, more speak, which is great. But also sure. why? Why? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's those things that we, we think we're like moving in the right direction, but really we're just upholding. Um, yeah these it's just another way for us to uphold these harmful systems yeah. um and i and i say that with compassion because it's sure. it's, it's like it's hard to like yeah. see it all and then figure out how do you balance it all and then there's the very real needs of we live for those of us who live in the united states we don't have universal health care we don't. don't have child care. We don't no. have a good public transportation system in most cities. We right. don't most of us are one or two paychecks away from disaster. Right. Like mm -hmm. universal basic income is a joke. Like we yeah. don't have anything. And so, nope. which is also a real thing to keep us working so much so that we don't rest, so that we don't take care of each other, so that we don't do community work, so that we don't organize. So, and so all of these things are so deeply interconnected. Um, and so starting to, and so again, I come back to what I was saying a little bit earlier around like, if we start to ask why, why do I think this way? And who first gave me this thought and who benefits from this way of thinking and who does this really support? Then at least we can start to, like, you don't even have to change your mind, but to start to be curious about things rather than assuming that these value systems just are the truth. If we can just start yeah. to be curious and, and inquire about it and investigate, then maybe we can start to change what we think is possible and we can start to change how we interact and, yeah. oh, well, maybe we can do something different or maybe we can, and then that's where change can start to happen. Um, yeah, that's it's amazing. A lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, we're gonna take a really quick break um, when we come back, got a couple of questions for Nora, um, as well as a fire top five. Stay with us. Want to tell you about one of our partners, Quetzal Education Consulting. Quetzal Education Consulting is a queer, black, and indigenous women-owned firm offering anti-racist consulting, PD, coaching, keynotes, workshops, and more. Their newly released Abolitionist Teaching Workshop series coaches and prepares teachers to further develop abolitionist practices in the classroom. 
Find out why they have been called the future of educational justice by Dr. Bettina Love. You can book a free consultation with Quetzal by calling 510-397-8011 or visiting quetzalec.com. That is Q-U-E-T-Z-A-L-E-C.com. And if you mention you heard about them through Two Dope Teachers, you will receive a 5% discount on their Abolitionist Teaching PD series. Once again, you can book them by visiting quetzalec.com on their Connect With Us page. What's up, people? It's me, Gerardo Munoz, your 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year. I will always be the 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year. Um, and this is habitually disruptive. I'm talking to Nora Rahimian, um, who is the dope founder of the collective culture fix. And man, if you miss the first half, if for some reason you start your podcast halfway through, go back to the beginning. This first half was dope. Um, and, uh, we're going to get back in. So, uh, Nora, thanks for being here. Oh, this is so much fun. Thank you for having this, me. This man, you, you're you're like dropping all of this like knowledge, and um, I'm just glad it's recording because I don't have to write it all down. I can just <laughs> go back to it. Um, whatever fun you're having, I'm having more fun. Um, so I wanna I wanna um, I wanna talk about one of your tweets because it's something that I've been working on a lot when it comes to what the teaching profession looks like, and by extension, what a lot of these professions, particularly the professions that proposed to be engaged in humanizing work, um, you know, what those are like. So you had made a really clear distinction between representation and systematically excluded. Um, this was a really powerful thing. Why is that distinction important when it comes to any of these aspects, whether it's in the arts, whether it's in popular culture, politics, education? Why is the distinction between representation and systematic exclusion important? I, I think with any language, when we show, we can use use language to show responsibility. Mm. So oh, I like that. Show cause and effect. And then right. when we can really understand responsibility and cause and effect, then we can come up with solutions. So the difference between saying underrepresented, which makes it seem like it's just a thing, well, like who's doing the underrepresenting? Why yeah. is it underrepresented? Because then you represents. <laughs> and, and what does representation even mean, right? Right. Because then it becomes really easy, for example, to throw in a couple token people and be like, well, now you're represented. Or yeah. to say things like, well, we tried to look, but we couldn't find anybody. That's right. right? That's right. And all those things that we hear versus if we say systemically excluded or institutionally yeah. oppressed. And then we understand mm. that there's power acting on people to exclude them to, yeah. And so it brings in the fact that this isn't just like what we were talking about earlier, the way it's always been, but that yeah. these are things that are actually happening with systems behind them. And that yeah. the point of change then needs to be at the systemic level or the institutional yeah. level. That's a piece that, you know, we're, I'm, I'm engaged in this work at the state level to kind of um, address um, the lack of diversity within the teaching profession. And I'm definitely going to bring this message about that, because I do think that when it comes to education and the pathways into, into teaching, um, I, just, I just feel like there's so, there so few pathways for people of color, for people who grew up in poverty, 
um, to move into these spaces where they're so needed. And that piece of being systemically excluded, then it, it begs a very simple question, not an easy question, but a simple question of like, okay, how do we stop excluding certain folks? And what is it that we've baked into our systems um, that, that, that just sort of um, perpetuates that exclusion. And and it, it makes me think of something you said in the earlier part of this conversation, which was about how we pawn off responsibility on the people who are victimized by this thing. It's like, well, you're not working hard enough. You need to finish high school. You need to finish college. You need to go get a degree. You need to do your student teaching and do all the things that you're, so you need to grind, right? You need to be a part of this grind culture, um, regardless of what the system may or may not be doing for you and to you. So I, I so I'll be taking that uh, to, to these legislative sessions. <laughs> well, so this is something I do a, a talk um, on decolonizing our ideas of professionalism. And one of the yeah. things that that comes up so often is if we talk about the issue as representation, then I hire you, but the system isn't designed for your success. So then yeah. you you quote unquote fail. fail. I look at it as you've messed up. And, yeah. well, and then of course, I'm gonna generalize all people who are like you, that they are all the same. And That's so right. versus if we recognize that these are systemic things, when I hire you, I now have a responsibility to create a system or a workplace culture or practices, policies, whatever, that are conducive to you thriving. Yeah. So that the burden of success in the same way we talk about addressing like the difficult points the burden of your success is no longer an individual thing. The burden of your su success also becomes a collective response. A collective. That's right. That's right. right. But, yeah. No, no, that's oh. it. Just to create workspaces or learning spaces or cultural spaces that are yeah. then different at all points rather than just the outward facing like publicity. So you've, you've got me thinking about the power of words. Uh, and my friend Julia um, will appreciate this uh, because I learn a new word every time I talk to her. But the idea of learning spaces, right? Um, spaces that learn. And, mm -hmm. and I think that that's like, I think how powerful it would be for a school leader, let's just let's just put it in my in my field, a school leader hires African-American teachers who are disproportionately run out of the profession in, in the state of Colorado and says, hey, listen, this system isn't designed for you to succeed. So what we're going to do is we, we are going to go in this with our eyes wide open and, and I'm going to work on ways that I can make this a place where you can be successful and where we can all be successful together. And it's not going to be perfect because the system as constituted it's hardy, man. It's strong. It's resilient. Like it's, it's hard to break down, but, but my commitment is we're going to continue to do the work so that we can have our eyes wide open and hopefully we're able to build something better and create a space that learns. I like that learning spaces. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it kind of, as we start to wrap up and I feel like I could, I could talk to you all day. Um, just like, so, so many, um, Gosh, so many powerful insights that I hope people are getting um, just amazing things out of like I am right now. Um, we're, we're in a, um, and I, I get, I get beaten down by the, by just kind of the pessimism of the moment. Like things are just real tough right now. Um, I saw an article in the Atlantic that sort of talked about how artists, creative people, writers, especially 
should start creating art as if the world is about to end, as if we are in the end times. And, and this author was writing specifically in terms of global warming and the environmental crisis that we face worldwide and saying, let's, let's actually start creating as if we're in the end times. And I thought of you when I read the article, because I'd be very curious what you think about that thesis, not having, I didn't share the article with you. So obviously, um, but what's your reaction to this idea that, that attempts to reconcile the trauma that we're experiencing in the world with the creative process? What's your reaction to that? I, I mean, I think it's multi-leveled. Right, like so, we yeah. can create art just for the sake of creating art, art for like processing, art for he your own personal shit, and that mm -hmm. is useful and that's valuable. And then we can create art that's like for public consumption to make people understand something. And we're seeing yeah. this now with what's that? Don't look up. And so everyone, yeah. sees but we also see this like when we listen to a boys to men song and we cry. Right relate to right. the heartbreak of like yeah so there's something about <laughs> all of it <laughs> about art that helps us process and understand things that are really really mm -hmm. difficult yeah. or things that are taboo or things like i don't want to feel my heartbreak but i can listen to your heartbreak and that helps yeah. me, right like there's that buffer so yeah i think that's valuable um and then there's like more activist driven art that's designed to do something, move something, change something. I guess the important thing is to understand what like one size doesn't fit all. Yeah. And we can, and then the, the other part of that is making sure that the processes behind the art are also not harmful. So are you, like the artist might be getting paid, but is the artist's team getting paid and are they being right. credited? And, you know, if that artwork gets sold again, does the artist still get credit? You know, there's like that, the kind of politics of, of art. Um, and so I don't know that art has to be everything to everyone at all times, but I do yeah. think it's important to recognize that, I don't know, like where, 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 what keeps coming up for me is the reminder that activism has to be proportional to your privilege. And so wow. that extends to art. For some of us, creating a piece of art and putting it into, into the world is the only way that we can be like, yo, shit is really messed up yeah, and yeah. pay attention. Right. And then for some of us, that's not enough. For some of us who are billionaires, maybe we should start paying taxes or maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And so I, think when I heard somebody say, um, you know, and I kind of, I feel like I, I, I feel like I've learned from you, like another way to look at this. I heard somebody say, let's not get mad at the billionaires for not paying taxes. Let's all start LLCs so that we also don't have to pay taxes in that kind of way. I'm like, well, here we go. We're just kind of, so we're not interrogating the injustice of people carrying their weight for society. Um, but rather, we're trying to ape their behaviors. We're trying to imitate their behaviors and uphold the system that they've created. Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. I saw someone I saw someone the other day who was like, self-care is having multiple side hustles. And I was like, what? What is wrong with you? No, <laughs> no. Self-care is advocating for universal basic income and health care. 
so that we can work on the things that we want to work on and not have to grind ourselves to be able to afford rent. And Self-care is the collective good, right? Self-care right. is working in community with each other, right? Yeah. And, so, ah. and so to answer, that's actually quotable. Self-care is the collective good. That needs to go <laughs> on like a t-shirt or a journal. Um, that makes some t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, to, to answer your question, I think that's where art fits in. Like first... For some people it is, for some people it's not. I think under capitalism, it's really hard to create art that's unique or, or challenging because you're if you're creating art to sell, that's a different kind of art than if you're creating art for yourself or you're creating yeah. art for community. So yeah, um, I don't know, I, I'm also really curious to go read the article because- Yeah, I'll send it to you. I'll say it was really interesting. Um, and um, yeah, and, and your response is a perfect response, I think, because I think these ideas of privilege and these ideas of what's the purpose of, of creating art in the first place and for you and, and the layers that you referred to, I think those are really powerful. Um, you ready to do a top five? Yes, I'm so excited. All right, we're going to move into the top five. I'm going to share my top five um and and then and then we'll hear yours and then and then what would be awesome is if you could share ways that people can find you follow your ideas all of that kind of stuff uh that would be really cool too because that's like a big part of what we're doing here so i'm gonna do my top five pens um so i'm a i'm a writer and even though i've published very little like i like to write and so taking my my Nora lessons that makes me a writer and I enjoy writing in it and for a lot of things so um the 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 pen is really important to me in terms of writing and like I can't just write with any pen obviously if I'm stuck in a hotel room and I bring my pens which would never happen but if it did um I I, I can manage with the hotel pen and the little notepad that they leave you um, so I'm going to go from, uh, th this is a ranking, this is hierarchical, unfortunately, because there are preferences. Uh, my number five pen is, you know, those Stadler pens that are like colorful, like all these different colors. Um, those those are number five, mostly because I feel like I should be creative with them. I kind of like looking at all the colors. I don't use all the colors, obviously, um, but those are super cool. Uh, my number four is is the old school Bic stick pen. Like those are just really good, really reliable, never clump, never explode, like they're just reliable. And I do not mind using that one. Um, my number three is a micron fine tip with a clicker um, that's got that little sharp tip and it makes the most wonderful scratching noise when you write. Like I can hear myself write, it's like this multi-sensory experience that I'm able to have. Uh, my number two is a Pentel, Pentel Uniball, which also makes a scratching noise, but it also looks kind of space age. Like it looks like a, it looks like a space capsule. Like I can write in space with it. And it's, it's pretty, it's pretty beautiful. Um, but the number one pen, and this will probably surprise no one because I will chase folks down to get this pen back if they borrow it from me, if I even let them borrow it in the first place, is the Muji 0.38 tip pen. It's just... It's a sublime transcendent writing experience. And the ink runs out really fast and the pens are really hard to find, um, but that is the number one pen. So I, so I ask you, Nora, first of all, what do you think about my top five? I, as someone who's recently started being particular about pens because I journal, <laughs> I, yes. get, 
I get it. And I, I'm, I'm, saying. A, I'm on a mission to find like the perfect journaling pens oh. and like different colors, but they don't bleed, but they have the right point. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So. Well, and then I, the relationship between page and, and pen, like that, that's a really hard thing to find, to find that right kind of synchronicity, right? Well, you yeah. have to tell me what you come up with because, um, because I'm open to that. Um, I could do a whole journal thing too, but, um, but that'll be another, another episode. Nor what is your top five? I could definitely do a journal top five. Okay, my top <laughs> five. And you know what I have to share with folks, like as someone who struggles with like depression and anxiety, the fact that I can come up with five, I probably could not have made this list a year ago. And so wow. I just had a moment right now. So these are my top That's five things that bring great. me joy. Top wow. five things that bring me joy. Love um, it, love it. In no particular order, because there's no yeah, yeah, yeah. the joy. That's right, that's right. Um, <laughs> So one of the things is taking my dog to the dog park and to watch him run around and play. He's a, he's a Frenchie. He's like on the bigger side, but he loves the okay. big dogs. And there is nowhere in the world where I feel so present. Like it's just me and him. And I'm like running or I'm like that, you know, I'm like running around and chasing him. Yep. So there are few things as fun as dogs experiencing joy. It's, <laughs> He like him happy makes me happy. And he knows when we're going to the dog park. So he's all hyped. So then I'm like, <laughs> it's like contagious. So yeah. definitely Aww. the dog park. Um, also on my list are Persian meme accounts on Instagram. Oh, okay. It makes me one, it's helped me. My Farsi has gotten better because I can like, oh, dope. the Instagram comments in Farsi, but it just makes, you know, as I said, I didn't grow up. Persian people really that's right and so yeah. it makes me feel connected to my culture and mm. like the universality of experiences um speaking of dogs for example like my mom was like dogs are dirty don't bring them why do you have a dog and then now they're like thickest thieves which is like a Persian meme like it's you know there's a Mexican dad and dogs yes the trend that goes out there too same things like we don't want a dog but I'll build him a two-level dog house yes. <laughs> Like make sure he eats like the best of everything. Um, that's awesome. So Persian means if I'm ever having yep. a bad day, like those are, that's where we're scrolling. Um, <laughs> also on my list are little free libraries, um, wow. which are, if you don't know, they're public light, like mini mailbox libraries and you take a book and you leave a book. And my favorite thing is to like grab whatever book is there no matter the genre, no matter the topic and just read mm. it and then take Yo. it back. So I have like books in general make me so happy and yeah. the little free light, like the accessibility of knowledge and like during pandemic, while people were worried about toilet paper, I was like, what if I run out of books? What if I run out of Dude, No, that's real. Was, that's real. <laughs> um, so books, and if anyone ever wants like suggestions for things to read, I've got a whole running list of there you go. books. Um, fourth on my list is sitting in the sun. Like just mm. the feel of warmth and sunshine. And in my apartment, there's like trees in front of me and I can watch the squirrels run around. So I can like sit in the sun and watch the squirrels play which y'all, I oh, used wow. to be scared of squirrels. So now the fact yeah. that it's kind of cute is progression. Um, 
but it's just such a simple thing like to the feeling of the sun and warmth and like nature always brings me joy and then the fifth thing on my top five is stickers stickers make me so happy and this ties into what we were just talking about because i'm like a big journaler journaling makes me happy and so stickers and pens are like part of my create it's like a creative outlet for me where yeah. i real i like express myself i take up space in my journal i like yeah. show up in whatever ways and so i have like a little sticker obsession maybe a little problem <laughs> a little. I, don't think, I don't think it's a problem it's not a problem <laughs> but you know i love what? that it's also like learning to allow myself to do simple things that make me happy and stickers yeah. are so simple and they make me so yeah. happy and so yeah so that's i handed out stickers to my students on the first day of class two days ago and they like i i wasn't even prepared for how happy it was going to make them like they were so excited to get stickers and i have to tell you speaking of stickers i have the sticker that you sent me i should have um i should have like shown it to you it, it was on the cover of the notebook i used for the first doctoral class i took this year it's like yeah. right there on the front because i think that the, these mindsets that you bring are so important as i move into this academia space and and I, I love it so far. So far, it's great. It's humanizing. It's inclusive. It's non-competitive. Like, it's, it's a beautiful space to be in. But just knowing, it's just a really good reminder to me that that stuff can rear its head at any time. And that, you know, these mindsets that you bring are actually really helpful to me. So that that was like such a happy day when I got that sticker from you. So I share your sticker love. I do. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Well, Nora, this has been such a fun conversation. Um, will you come back? Oh my God, I would love to. Let's do it. Let's do it. And I just so appreciate um, you and these ideas that you're dropping. This is an ideal time to hear some of the ideas that you're amplifying and sharing because I just think that so many of us, myself included, just feel really lost right now and not like fully clear on what we should or can be and um and these ideas i think are just really healing ideas and a lot of good stuff to think about um how do people find you how do they follow your work how do they get connected uh instagram tw i love i love twitter twitter is uh, the best twitter is the best <laughs> linkedin but i'm nora rahimian at everything nora rahimian at gmail email me like i'm like the things that we talk about isn't just talk like my dms are always open shoot if i if something intrigued you or you're curious like email can verify me. can verify can I, <laughs> this is before true. we wrap can i tell people yeah. how you and i like connected so we met on yes. we met during culture fix we, we like had been in each other's periphery and then one day yeah. i was like so i believe in birthdays i believe in like snail mail so i was like look i want to send people cards if you're in the u.s like send me your address and i'll send you snail mail. <laughs> like Ran, you know, I like posted this thing on Twitter and he was like, yep. cool, here's my address. And so I, and I try to be like thoughtful around the cards and you, I think part of the thing with Twitter is you get to know people because it's so valued. Yeah. And like, yeah. it's like, you really get to know people off of what they think and how they think. And so yeah. I sent him a card and then we were like, yo, we should talk to each other. Yeah. And so from that, <laughs> you know, from like a Twitter chat to us, uh, to snail mail. So like, and now here we are. And, you know, yeah. you said, like, are we friends? You're legit. Our friends. Now. <laughs> that um, makes me so happy. <laughs> and so I say that to say, like, 
I know sometimes we hear folks and then we're like, oh, but we get nervous about reaching out. Like, but I think if we're serious about these things that we've been talking about in today's podcast, like we have to take the risk of connecting. We're nothing without like uh, none of this work so isolation. And so I I want to acknowledge that it's scary, but like also I'm a safe place. If you come at yeah. like as long as you don't come at me out of pocket, like yeah, don't I'm be all not, sideways. <laughs> yeah, like let's build you know, part of culture fix and this whole thing is like let's signal to each other that yeah. I'm like you. We're this like yeah. and then we can connect and then we can, if nothing else, just support each other so that we don't feel alone in the midst of all this chaos. So um That's beautiful. DM me, Twitter, Instagram. I'm like really easy to find. Nora Rahimian at Gmail. Um my link in bio has like a ton more information about like newsletter and workshops and stuff like that. But yeah, you all like let's let's connect. Let's be get friends. connected. Get connected. I can already think of like a hundred people I think need to meet you and like that'd be amazing. So do some Twitter intros. Um, because that's super fun. Um, Norohemian, thank you so much. Um, you you embody the spirit of joyful disruption, um, the radical imagination, um, and all of these things. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to be with me here today. My pleasure. Thank you so much.